In the early aughts, NASA declared it would send humans to Mars. With the experience and knowledge gained on the moon, we will then be ready to take the next steps of space exploration, human missions to Mars, and to worlds beyond. Scientists are still looking to answer one key question. Is there now, or was there in the past, life on planet Mars? The search for life outside the Earth is one of the fundamental questions in all science. And of all the objects in the solar system, other than Earth, Mars is the most likely site to have life or have life sometime in the past. With freezing Texas winters, West Coast wildfires, and Midwest tornadoes, it may well be time we started seeing other planets. I'm Sarah McConnell, and this week on With Good Reason, exploring the great unknown. Before humans ever traveled into space, canines blazed a trail. Back in the 1950s, the Soviets were eager to follow their Sputnik success with an even bigger milestone. They would send something living into outer space. Amy Nelson is a professor of history at Virginia Tech. She says the pups were easy to rebrand as space pioneers. Dogs were chosen because, first of all, they knew a lot about them. Uh, so the Russian physiology school of the 19th century was founded on research using dogs, but also because dogs were social animals. They, were, they liked people. They're good with people. Dogs have evolved to communicate with people and live with us. And so they're great, they're great to work with. And why did they feel the urgency to send a dog up right after Sputnik? So Sputnik is October of 1957, and Sputnik sort of accidentally launches the space race because it becomes very clear that there's that, wow, the Soviets have the technology to send an artificial satellite into orbit. Had never been done before. We couldn't do that. They are obviously way ahead of us. Building on that, Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, says, wow, that got them excited. I need something really special for the revolution holiday, which is coming up at the beginning of November. And the rocket engineers are like, okay, (laughs) uh, how would a dog be? And he's like, yeah, dog, that sounds fine. Like, whatever, sounds good. So that's how they um, got to developing the dog capsule to put in Sputnik 2, which went up in November. But that flight and um, sending Laika, who's the first, you know, really famous space dog, builds on almost a decade of work, right? They'd been doing rocket flights with dogs since the early 50s. They had just been done in secret and not much was known about them. How many dogs, before the first dog was sent into space by the Soviets, how many dogs had been trained and lived and died as part of that program? That's a great question. Um, There's no firm answer because the records are still pretty much secret. And uh, because dogs often flew more than once. uh, And because they changed their names. (laughs) So the same dog might fly under one name one time and then come back a couple years later under, under a different name. But what we know is that between 1951 and 1958, there are at least 29 rockets uh, that flew with dogs. And yet there were also hundreds of dogs who were part of the training program. Right. For every dog that goes, that flew in a rocket, there were many, many more who did the training on the ground, but never made it. Were the dogs people's pets or were the dogs bred in labs? Neither. The dogs were mostly stray dogs picked up off the streets of Moscow. (laughs) They had to be small, they had to be friendly, and they preferred females with light-colored fur. Tell me a little bit about the dog named Laika. And you write that Laika is the Russian name for Bark? Barker? 
Barker, yep. Laika comes from the Russian verb that means to bark, and Laika is also the name of a kind of sled dog that's very common in the Russian Arctic region. Uh, so Laika was in this first cohort of dogs that were trained for orbital flight. She had flown previously in a vertical launch, so not gone to space, but had gone up and down. And she was distinguished by her incredibly um, stable personality. She was very unflappable. You know, nothing, nothing really got to her. She was, she was very, very easygoing and a very sweet dog. What was her flight like for her? Was it traumatizing? Yeah, I think we it, it had to have been horrifying. Um, she was the plan was that she would go up and spend seven days in orbit before um, being quote humanely euthanized. Uh, but in actuality, there was a problem with the um, insulation on her capsules, so, so sort of a heat shield issue like we sometimes have with um, space shuttles and whatnot uh, even now. So the temperature in her cabin rapidly became just suffocatingly hot, and she died of overheating within, you know, two, two she did two complete or- orbits, but within three hours she was dead. It was not a nice way to go. And yet the flight went on. And the flight went on and the um, PR around her still being alive and and being okay also went on. The messaging continued to be that everything was great uh, for the full seven days. Did they claim that she survived reentry? Well, no, there, there was no reentry. So this is where the scandal was. So putting an object into orbit around the Earth is hard, but even harder is bringing it back. So um, there was no possibility of bringing her back. She was going to die in space from the beginning. What the Soviets underestimated was the kind of level of outrage (laughs) in the West in particular over that plan. Were there certain groups in particular who protested using the dog in this way? Yes, um, there were. And there were there was even a protest in front of the United Nations uh, in New York featuring dogs from New York wearing sandwich boards um, with signs on them saying, you know, send Khrushchev up instead or we're your best friend, treat us better. There was, there was quite an outcry about it. How do you think Soviet officials reacted to that? What did they think of this criticism from the West? I think officials thought it was, the criticism was really hypocritical. They thought that what happened to people in the West uh, was worse than what happened to people under Soviet socialism, right? That, uh, that we were hypocritical to be worried about the fate of a dog when we, were, we had um, dropped bombs on Japan. We do all these horrible things to people, and here we were getting all worked up about the fate of a dog. When the Soviets had the Sputnik achievement, Americans were dismayed, wowed and dismayed, and worried about how far behind they were. How did Americans react to sending Laika into orbit and around the Earth? Because they happen so close together, the reaction, it kind of blurs together, right? right? So Sputnik 1 and Laika both supercharge interest in uh, space flight, space travel in the United States. It prompts the establishment of NASA and really kicks our own space program kind of into gear. How celebrated were these early dogs, Laika and Belka and Strelka and others? Very. Uh, Belka and Strelka in particular, they held press conferences. <laughs> they were <laughs> the subject of uh, cartoons. Um, there's also this magazine cover, which I just, you know, I just love. And it's an upshot. So you're, you know, looking from below the uh, shoulders of these little dogs who are still dressed in their spacesuits looking up at them and the little dogs are just standing there panting and with their ears kind of out. And the below the headline says, space, expect a visit from Soviet man. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like these dogs are the scouts. You know, they're the scouts, they're the trailblazers, they've led the way, you know, we will be there soon. 
So yeah, they were really famous. Um, Khrushchev gave one of their puppies to Kennedy. <laughs> really? Uh, yes, really. Do you think that Russian people today remember Laika and remember Belka and Strzelka and that whole era with pride and memorializing these creatures? Because I think they're little known today in U.S. society. They are remembered in the Soviet Union. So they're memorialized there in a couple of different ways. So one is there's a monument to the conquerors of space. That's what it's called. It's like, that's the coolest name for a monument ever, right? Monument to the conquerors of space. It's a um, several hundred foot high titanium obelisk not far from central Moscow that uh, fronts onto a major street. And there are these friezes that go along the base of it that sort of narrate the triumph of Soviet technology and rocketry development that led to conquering space. And the humans in those friezes are anonymous. You know, they're engineers, they're technicians, they're, you know, smart people doing smart things, but they're not identifiable as distinct historical personalities. The only one is Laika. (laughs) You're writing a book about the space dogs. Tell me what you're working on. I'm writing a book called Space Dogs, An Unnatural History, that looks at uh, the space dogs, all of them, everything we know about them, from the beginning sort of through the very recent past. So I'm interested in who the dogs were and what they did and how they made their way in a world that had to have been very strange and very terrifying on a bunch of levels. And I follow them, their whole story, you know, through recruitment, training, and then what happened to them afterwards uh, if they if they survived. Uh, and then I look at their resonance in popular culture and in global popular culture uh, over the last 20 or 30 years. Do you think that we make of them, do you think we too much make these animals that were forced to do our bidding into heroes, sort of like Hunger Games, that we memorialize them after we cause their deaths and they live on in popular culture? Exactly. I think that's right on. I think the space dogs remain compelling for us because they touch on a really raw nerve <laughs> of uh, you know of human aspiration human greed just because you can do something doesn't mean you should and yet at the same time we have to acknowledge that they helped us get to space and it was horrendous not only did some die and they were captured off the streets but a lot of the training you write that they were put through was awful Yeah, I think the most horrible thing that happened to them was the isolation training. So they were um, kept in isolation in a kind of sensory deprivation situation for increasingly longer times. You'd start them off slowly, but building up to sometimes a couple of weeks, three weeks at a time, you know, just food and water, unable to really move around much, no contact with humans or other dogs. It was psychologically devastating, uh, and a lot of dogs didn't su- didn't survive that. One of the most heart wrenching things that I've read is that Laika, before her launch, was wired with these heart sensors, and even though she died during the flight, they saw how rapidly her heart beat, almost out of her chest, during mm-hmm. the horrific g-force that happened when she was launched into space, and they still have that data on display someplace. Yes, that's that's right. So they monitored, uh, they had monitors in place for, yes, heartbeat, respiration, uh, all the things. And yeah, that you said it exactly right. Her heart did nearly beat out of its chest um, because she was so, she got so, she got so overheated. Um, it, it, it sounded really gruesome. I'm glad we don't do this anymore. (laughs) I would hope that we humans as a species have evolved to the point that we wouldn't do something like this anymore. Use animals in place of people? Using animals in scientific research is one thing, but to use, to take advantage of dogs' social nature and their adaptability and their just kind of um, resilience, uh, to use them in this way just feels morally wrong to me. So I, I'm hoping that we're past that. 
Amy Nelson is a professor of history at Virginia Tech. Her forthcoming book is tentatively titled Space Dogs, An Unnatural History. Scientists have reason to believe that Mars has a lot in common with Earth. As early as 2024, astronauts could be sent to the Red Planet to start building human habitats. Sounds unrealistic, right? Not to Joel Levine. Joel is a professor of applied sciences at William & Mary and spent over 41 years at NASA and now serves as a consultant. You have a fascinating story about America's first decision to send people to Mars that came about in a press conference with then-President George Bush. Yes, a a very interesting press conference in January 2004 at NASA headquarters in Washington. President Bush announced, we're going to send humans to Mars and return them safely. And during the question and answer period, someone asked President Bush, uh, why are we sending humans to Mars? What are the scientific goals and objectives? And the president said, I don't know, but the NASA administrator sitting to my left, Sean O'Keefe, knows the answer, and I'll let him answer it. And uh, Mr. O'Keefe said, I actually don't have the answer to that at this point, but I'll get the answer. (laughs) Why would America want to send humans to Mars, did your committee decide? We found our committee, the HEMSAC committee, found two overarching questions that justify sending humans to Mars. Is there now or was there in the past life on planet Mars? The search for life outside the Earth is one of the fundamental questions in all science. And of all the objects in the solar system other than Earth, Mars is the most likely site to have life or have life sometime in the past. And the second question is, why did Mars undergo such catastrophic climate change? Mars was very similar to Earth. Mars had oceans that covered the Northern Hemisphere. Mars had rivers. Mars had lakes. Mars had a thick atmosphere. But something happened along the way over the last 4.6 billion years ago, and Mars became a very different planet. Mars lost all the surface water. It lost its oceans. It lost its rivers. It lost its lake. And Mars lost most of its atmosphere. Why? Why do we think? The answer we think is lying at the North Pole and South Pole of Mars, where we have ice caps, and we, on Earth, we have reconstructed the climate history of the Earth and the changes in the atmosphere by studying gases trapped in the ice cores in the Arctic and Antarctic. Well, we think we can do the same thing on Mars and learn the whole history of why Mars went from a very hospitable Earth-like planet to a very inhospitable planet that it is today. What's the best speculation or series of hypotheses about what happened to the Mars planet? Well, the fact is that we don't know for sure. Let me tell you what I think the leading idea is right now. A few years ago, NASA sent a spacecraft to Mars called MAVEN and found out that Mars is losing its atmosphere at a very significant rate. Now, we have evidence that Mars did lose its magnetic field, and once that happened, this process of losing an atmosphere may have started. And the reason Mars lost its magnetic field is that the core of Mars cooled off. So what will the loss of atmosphere and the loss of a magnetic field mean for human colonization of Mars? It will mean that if humans are to colonize Mars and live on Mars, we will have to bring large-scale habitats that will contain an atmosphere and that will permit humans to to live and work uh, on the surface of Mars. So really, you can't imagine that we would happily live and reproduce 
and go about our long lives on Mars, but rather this is all eventually exploratory, right? We will not colonize Mars and live happily ever after for a long, long time. The atmosphere of Mars is 95% carbon dioxide, 3% nitrogen, and 2% argon. Notice I haven't said oxygen, the gas that we, we need to survive. So the atmosphere of Mars, as it is today, is not conducive to have a large human population living on it. We will build large uh, enclosed structures on Mars if and when humans colonize Mars. If and when humans colonize Mars, but you do expect humans very definitely to go to Mars and explore, right? Humans will definitely go to Mars and will definitely explore Mars. And on the timetable for the first human mission to Mars is like 2033. That's a very short time. How long does it take to get to Mars? Right now, it will take a mission to Mars between seven and nine months, one way. And the plan is to stay for about 500 days on the surface. And of course, all this is not theory for you. You're part of a team actively deciding not just on whether we'll go to Mars, but what sort of infrastructure we need to build there. Tell me what sort of infrastructure you're planning. Well, l let me tell you the architecture for the first human mission to Mars. Yeah. NASA has built a new launch vehicle called the Space Launch System, SLS, very creative name. SLS is a very, very powerful rocket. Now, we're going to have the first test of the SLS sometime next year as an unmanned mission, no, no crew, just to see how it works. That will contain all of the infrastructure, food, uh, oxygen, water, that we need to keep astronauts around uh, on, on Mars for uh, 500 days. Then once we know, five, uh, seven to nine months after they take off and they successfully land on Mars and they're within 10 miles of each other, we will then send a crewed mission, the astronauts to Mars, once we know their equipment is already there in place on the surface of Mars. And in fact, one of the interesting things about going to Mars, and this is somewhat ironic, is that we're sending humans back to the moon. And that is because you want to practice going to Mars? Yes, we need more experience of living off the land and how you survive on another planetary body. So NASA decided to return to the moon. The program is called Artemis. Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo. And the first Artemis mission was scheduled for 2024. NASA just announced that that will probably slip. And one of the reasons it will slip is space. new spacesuits had to be designed because Apollo discovered the surface of the moon is covered by microscopic dust. That dust is made of glass, very, very sharp. And it got into the spacesuits. It caused corrosion and erosion. And we need uh, to safeguard astronauts as, as they return to the moon. And the development of a new spacesuit that can resist this glaceous environment of the moon has taken longer than we thought. That's so interesting. How did we not already know that moon dust is more like asbestos? Well, the, the interesting thing about moon dust is as Neil Armstrong on July 20th, 1969, was on the lunar a module walking down the ladder, making history as the first human on another planetary body, his first words were, it looks like the surface of the moon is covered by a very fine dust, two or three inches thick. And as he walked down the ladder and walked onto the surface of the moon 
and reported back to Earth that he said he sees his boot print uh, stand out in on on the dust. That dust is everywhere. Well, we know that that dust is glass, microscopic in size, and very dangerous, very lethal. Do you think the dust on Mars will be as bad? Mars is the dustiest planet in the solar system. The dust is so thick on Mars that we can't see the surface. Now, we don't think that the dust on Mars is made of glass, and it's not sharp. We don't think, although we have no evidence of it. And how long will they be on the moon during the Artemis mission? Well, in the first few Artemis missions, we're going to build the infrastructure, so maybe weeks to months. Uh, we're going to send them to the south pole of the moon. That's where we're going to set up our permanent uh, habitats, our permanent presence, because we have evidence that in the near the south pole of the moon, a few inches below the surface, there may be a lot of frozen water. And if there's a lot of frozen water, we can mine water so we don't have to bring bottled water or containers of water. We can use the water on the moon. Would you go to Mars if you had the chance? If I had the chance, I would not go to Mars. It's very, <laughs> very dangerous. Space is dangerous, even though we've seen lately trips to space that last 10 minutes by um, millionaires and everything was fine. <laughs> that was a few minutes. We're talking about seven to nine months. Uh, in fact, I gave a lecture at a local at a local junior high school about sending humans to Mars, and I got a call a week later from my a friend of mine saying my daughter was in the audience and now she wants to be an astronaut and she wants to go to Mars, and I spent about a month convincing her to study Mars, but don't go to Mars, be a scientist studying it on the Earth. I didn't want to be responsible for her going to Mars. We need astronauts. We need pioneers. Yeah, it's also a dangerous business. <laughs> Joel Levine, thank you. This has been fascinating. Thank you for talking with me. It's my pleasure. Joel Levine is a professor of applied sciences at William & Mary and a former senior research scientist for NASA. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. What does art have to do with outer space? Well, it's hard for humans and extraterrestrials to imagine what they can't see. Sterling Hundley is a painter and a professor in the School of Arts at Virginia Commonwealth University. He's illustrated for the likes of The New Yorker and the Grammys. So when NASA called on him, he brought his art students along to help the space pioneers improve their online messaging. Sterling, you've done a lot of commercial art for big names, The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, Grammys, and others. Describe some of the illustrations you did for those groups. Yeah, I, I kind of cut my teeth as a commercial illustrator, and my work's always been driven by, by ideas and trying to give them shape and form through, through drawing and painting. So a lot of editorial work, uh, magazines, publications, book covers, some advertising work, but almost all of it in the first part of my career started off as commercial illustration. Tell me about how you started with NASA. What was it NASA wanted from a commercial illustrator? So the NASA project was interesting. I, I think it's uh, always someone opening a doorway for you and an opportunity of something you maybe didn't imagine. My boss at VCU in the Communication Arts Department, uh, his name is Ty Reuben Ellingson, and he saw my personal work, my drawings that were focused on documenting the effect of time on my family and familiar things. And he said, let me show you something. And showed me the work of illustrator Brian Sanders from the 60s, who had gone behind the scenes with Stanley Kubrick's 2001 Space Odyssey and documented the making of that. He said, you know, you should do that for SpaceX. I said, yeah, yeah, I should. 
And uh, that started this whole train of thought where I started to investigate what was happening, how I could connect with SpaceX, and found that they were doing the Unmanned Dragon crew launch down in Florida, Cape Canaveral, the NASA uh, headquarters down there. I'd put a proposal together and convinced Ty and the dean to, to let me go down and actually embed myself there and, and document this experience. Isn't it amazing how sometimes groups and workers doing their own work don't realize how much a spark of artistry can translate their work in a way they never could themselves? You know, I've always thought about illustration and design as collaborative efforts. And the uh, the point is to make something greater than we can as individuals. And one of the gifts that, that artists have is our ability to to manifest abstractions and to give shape and form to to ideas. And you put us in a room of, of anybody and we can be the people who are, are showing them ideas that are hard yeses or hard noes and, and give ideas traction. You met somebody at NASA who said, let's talk a little bit more about another project we might be interested in. The story is this. I was going down to, to Florida and a friend of mine, a former student, gave me a call, said he was coming into town in Richmond, had a show. I said, well, I'm going to miss you, but didn't your sister work for NASA? <laughs> and uh, yeah. he was like, yeah, she sure did. Let me shoot her a text. And uh, he did that. She reached out on my behalf. Nothing landed when I got down there. I made some connections myself and met some scientists and people who were involved with NASA. But it wasn't until, I guess, about three weeks later that she gave me a call and said, hey, Sterling, I've got a project for you. Let's talk about it. And uh, that's where that relationship started. And what did they want? What was nagging at them? So I think what they had in mind was to, to bring us into a public kind of viewing of an autonomous drone program they were working on, dressing it up in kind of a, almost an arts and crafts type of thing where we would to, to build structures and paint them. And, you know, I, I think kind of thinking about artists in that capacity of, okay, they can make things, they can build things that can be visually interesting, and that can, be, that can have an appeal to it. But our role changed pretty dramatically when we were invited to come out to NASA Langley, the base, just as a volunteer, just to sit in on a kind of a blue sky discussion about what the, the event was actually going to be. So it was uh, the engineers, the, the program administrators and the scientists, and we were sitting in a, a boardroom. I went there with a colleague of mine, Jason Bennett, and I quickly kind of stood up and said, well, what if we did this? And I, I showed them something on the whiteboard and I could draw it. Then Jason came up to the whiteboard and mm -hmm. he drew something that kind of built on that. And they said, wow, that's a completely different way of thinking about that than, than what we had in mind. What did you write on that whiteboard that they were seeing that I can't imagine? You know, it was just, it wasn't actually writing, it was drawing. And the thing, the thing about drawing was it's, uh, it's always a, um, a type of communication that cuts across uh, backgrounds and geographic locations, time and context. Is this the meeting where it was decided that there would be a course, a student course at VCU between VCU and NASA? You know, it's interesting that uh, this particular meeting that we were in, that had its own lifeline, it had its own, its own project. What was interesting, just like any type of business opportunity, we ended the day and then we were invited to, to go to this little bar there at NASA Langley called Aftershots. And, uh, or after, after, <laughs> sorry, after burners, that's what it's called. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it is after shots, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we took him up on it and we sat down with maybe six people from the team. The gal who brought us in started to talk about other problems they were trying to solve. Uh, she presented this idea that they had these things called top sheets, which were provided by the scientists who came up with inventions that they were trying to commercially license outside of NASA to the general public. And... The statement was, it's really complex information that we're having a hard time relaying out to people to tell them what it is. And I said, you know, what we do as illustrators and designers is we make complex things simple. It would be really interesting if we actually got a bunch of students involved and made animations and illustrations and uh, design work and, and uh, websites, whatever it is, to, to actually help these things make sense to people when they, they read about them and when they see them. So that's where it started, and then it became a pilot class for these students to kind of jump into this, uh, this project that had real-world application. The students came in, I think all they saw was like, well, 
Sterling's teaching this class that's connected to NASA somehow. And that was pretty much, <laughs> right. pretty much it. And uh, as they came in, it was, um, all right, so the first thing we need to do is we need to understand the problem. And a big part of my, uh, my personal belief is that we need to connect physically to, to go into shared spaces and have dialogue with actual people uh, to make these things work. So we were able to get the, uh, the students out to NASA Langley as, as a big site visit. And we met three different scientists who were willing to, to work with us on helping to amplify and bring some attention to their inventions. And the students took notes and we got an incredible tour. We had an F-22 Raptor fly overhead and was doing uh, its test flights. And we got to go to a 3D printed lab and just a really, really cool experience for all of us. At that point, we had to go back and, and assess where we could add value. The students, uh, they, they, were, they were pretty intimidated at first, but I was able to give them a bit of structure to figure out like, this is where we have the most value. This is what we can talk about. But before any of that happens, the thing that we need to work on the most and, and convince NASA that they need is a redesign of their website. And this was the, the tech transfer website. Uh, and when, one of our teams committed to that and they started to design it. It became the, the spine and the, the central body of everything else that we were doing. Even though NASA hadn't asked us to work on that particular element, it was just absolutely critical to the communication. It's so interesting that you saw something that NASA wasn't looking for, which is you definitely need a redesign of your website. In simple terms, what were you seeing and what were you and the students imagining? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's interesting, you know, when you're working with students, they know what's current, they know what's uh, interesting, they know what's engaging, and you have built into the students their own target audience. That That is who NASA is trying to speak to, is the people who are going to be entrepreneurs and who are kind of changing the face of, of, of the country and of the world. Truly, the students across the board, just it, it was all their best work. And the uh, the team that was working on the website started off the presentation. We ended up not just giving that presentation to NASA Langley, but to the NASA agency nationwide. So they had people from DC and out in Texas and California all sitting on this final presentation. And at the end of it, NASA decided they wanted to, to take these ideas and implement them into the, the tech transfer portal, which uh, again was the way that NASA engages with the public uh, for the, the licensing of their intellectual property. What did you suggest it be changed? In other words, how did we go from being a NASA portal to something that was appealing to younger people? Well, it had to move. You know, pictures speak volumes, and not just pictures, but when you start to layer in the uh, the effect of sequence and time through animation and storytelling, then you have something that has an emotional connection to it. It has an application. We started to think about illustrations and case studies and just something that grabs people when they first come in, that holds their attention, that rewards them as they go deeper down that rabbit hole. So when you first come to the website, the students went all through NASA's collected database of videos going back to space research and uh, aeronautics and everything in between. They've got a really rich and robust uh, database of information that wasn't being used. So seeing those types of images when you first come to a, a NASA site, you, you want the site to look current. You want it to look like space. You want it to look like it's something that's going into the future, not something that's kind of uh, been built in the past. So that was a big part of it, just getting that video up front. We, we and I should say I, am a champion for putting an artist at the table with the scientists, the policymakers, the politicians, uh, the engineers, because we have a unique capability to envision the future. Are the students that you have artists and illustrators, or are they web designers with an artistic flair? We actually get students across the board. So in communication arts, we uh, we get designers and illustrators, people who want to go into entertainment arts, that want to go into book, into print. Um, it, it really is applied art with drawing at its core. And uh, so I, I think that it starts again with just understanding that drawing is a language and it's a universal language. It's wonderful. Sterling Hundley, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. It's been my pleasure. Sterling Hundley is an illustrator and professor in the School of Arts at Virginia Commonwealth University. A lot of futuristic technology is already here, 
Think about it. Kids have drones for toys, and even grandparents get a turn at the Oculus virtual reality headset. David Bowles worked at NASA for 40 years. Now he directs Old Dominion University's Visa program, the Virginia Institute for Spaceflight and Autonomy. He says some space technologies, like autonomous vehicles, are getting more terrestrial. David, who around the world right now is doing the most groundbreaking work with autonomous devices? What has captured your attention? Well, I think it's really permeating everything we see. Uh, Alexa in your house, to the uh, Roomba vacuuming your floors. So it's, it's permeating all aspects of what we do. And then things we do in space. Most of the things we do in space or autonomous. Lots of new companies are getting into this field, and it's exciting. Recently, the James Webb Space Telescope was launched. What impressed you about the autonomy of that device? So just the amount of um, it's launched in a stowed configuration and then on its way to its final destination, you know, the sun shield deploys, the solar panels deploy, the mirror, the segmented mirror deploys. It's, It's really quite quite an engineering feat of how this thing deploys. And it's going to allow us to look back into the origins uh, of the universe. It's, it's going to be truly an amazing instrument and really looking for it. I, I mean, I just think about all the pictures uh, that we see from the Hubble Space Telescope, which has been an amazing asset. What have you read is likely just over the horizon for us. What will mm-hmm. we be automating in five or ten years? Right now, a lot of the drones, if you go to a hobby store and just buy a drone, you're really, the the human is kind of controlling that. I think you're going to see them for certain applications where they're really thinking for themselves and making decisions at some level. You see that in the military. I I think a great example of that, um, both with things that fly, but also things that either drive on the ground or go in the water, whether it's an autonomous boat or an autonomous underwater vehicle. You're going to see them do more and more activities where the human gives the broad parameters, and then the vehicle starts uh, to do that and is able to make decisions along the way. Perfect examples, emergency response and rescue is a great example of where you're, you're using now a machine instead of putting somebody's uh, life in potential danger in a hazardous uh, situation, whether it's looking at a toxic spill or something like that. If you jump ahead, you know, maybe 10, 15 years. So I remember the Jetsons and George in his flying car. I think we're close to that, where you're going to see uh, first uh, piloted uh, small kind of flying cars. But then at some point, I think you're going to see... Um, more of an autonomous operation. The other piece uh, I want to touch on is just smart houses, smart cities, smart campuses, smart infrastructure, and maintenance and repair, and, and as opposed to letting something break and then having to go fix it. So it, it's just growing and growing um, in, all, in all aspects. In your position as director of the Virginia Institute for Space Flight and Autonomy, In some ways, that's a fledgling institute, coordinating the brain power and the institutions nearby, including the U.S. Navy and the largest port in the world, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's a huge Department of Defense uh, footprint in the Hampton Roads area. There's also a large commercial port, one of the largest ones on the East Coast. And then we have two NASA facilities. We also have a spaceport where you can launch to orbit. Uh, That's pretty unique right now. Right now, there are only four places in the United States that you can launch all the way to orbit, and one of them's um, on Virginia's eastern shore. These things are going to happen. We can be part of that and help drive it and help lead it and and reap the benefits of it, or we can sit on the sidelines. And I'm much more for being proactive and being a part of leading that and reaping the benefits of it. We're actually working with the port of Virginia to look at, okay, are there applications for autonomous vehicles for port safety, security, emergency response type things? So if you have a 
hurricane and uh, you have some debris in the channel that's closing, you, you know, the shipping lanes in the port. Right now, a lot of that is monitored and, and found by people in boats. Can we deploy autonomous surface and undersurface vehicles to look for those kind of things and do it much more rapidly? We've just started some conversations with the city of Virginia Beach to look at, okay, how can autonomous vehicles can help the life-saving uh, lifeguard experience? Not replace the lifeguards, but just enhance their effectiveness. Look for, uh, you know, uh, swimmers in distress, maybe identify riptides. How about alerting for sharks? Well, that's a very interesting one. Ed. We actually did a little research and got on the phone with Australia. They've actually been uh, doing this for quite a while. And one of their big problems is shark detection. Kind of the analogy to looking at sharks is looking at riptides. So you can be flying up and down with a camera and identify where the riptides are from above quicker than you could see it from the coastline. What about the recent case where Storm shut down I-95, one of the nation's major thoroughfares, and thousands of people were trapped in their cars for more than a day in many cases? Could autonomous devices be useful in those circumstances? Yeah, it's, it's certainly easy to envision emergency response delivering uh, supplies and things to people that have been stranded, you know, 15, 20 hours uh, out of water, out of food, out of heat. Are there some autonomous uh, vehicles that you could get to them and then, and then get them out of their car, but at a minimum deliver uh, maybe needed supplies if they've been in there a very long time. That's interesting. Imagine a system where 911 includes the ability to go to a map, identify an area where people are trapped in their cars, right? Yes. And you have a fleet of drones like the National Guard, but they're autonomous devices that are sent with supplies and equipment to each vehicle. Yeah, yeah, that, that, is, that is doable. How much of an economic driver do you think this field is? Big. As the number of applications grow, uh, I think you're going to see more and more companies developing these vehicles. It cuts across everything. Agriculture. We haven't talked about agriculture or, or uh, looking at the coastline for uh, you know, sea level rise and coastal resiliency. There are another couple applications that we've actually done some work in. But you're going to see as the demand grows, you're going to see growth in the industry to support that demand. There's the opportunity to collect lots of data, whether it's from a drone or whether it's from an autonomous uh, surface vehicle on the water or on the land or even all the way up in space. All of these things are collecting data. Well, how do we get this data back to, in, in decision in policymakers' hands where you don't have to be a data scientist to understand it? Take an example, maybe real estate. Hey, maybe we should build here if we look at what's flooded over the last so many, so many years. Um, you know, things like that, where to plant. Uh, so there are tremendous applications. So on the data side, it's not just the vehicle side. I think there's tremendous economic opportunities on the data side as well. There's also the downside. I mean, aren't drones and autonomous devices all mostly various kinds of glorified spying gear? Isn't there a psychic cost of never feeling unseen or alone? Don't you want to be able to climb a mountain or travel through a forest and think there's not some nest camera around every turn? Yes, I do. And, and that's why one of the things I love about living on the eastern shore, I'm in a very rural location. I do feel like I've, I've got that solitude uh, when I need it. And I think we can manage that. I don't think that that's not the one thing I'm, I'm worried about. I don't think we're going to get to the point where you you don't have that solitude. But it's a great question, and it's it's worth asking, and it's worth asking to make sure we think about that as we integrate these systems into everyday life. Because I, I think everybody would agree we don't want to lose that ability. You don't want to feel like you're being looked at all the time. So I mean, I've been involved in advanced. Uh, technology and, and research de uh, development focused on aerospace 
for the last 40 some years. And I think, you, you know, as, as technology evolves, I think, you know, we've, we've uh, seen that in the past. And, and again, I think it's how we as society manage that, if you will. We don't want to lose control. But there, there have been technological leaps of things in, in the past. I mean, when computers first got here, we humans don't want to lose the, uh, the control. We want to use these, we want to use technology to make our lives better, not lose control of it. And that's, that's there's a risk there. So we, we've got to keep, uh, we can't ignore that. We got to keep an eye on that. Well, David Bowles, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Oh, you're quite welcome. It was a pleasure. David Bowles is director of VISA, Old Dominion University's Virginia Institute for Spaceflight and Autonomy. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, a National Cancer Institute designated cancer center, researching and developing the treatments of tomorrow, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.